So, violence. We're going to do violence this morning. Uh, not literally, of course. <laughs> um, welcome to TLS. I believe we have lemon and lime scones to look forward to. Yeah. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, then I do apologise for mentioning scones almost every time. But uh, it's an important element of, uh, of TLS. So. So I've said uh, this this first little section here. Uh, well, this is awkward, um, and it is a bit awkward, isn't it? Um, dealing with the subject of the the violence that uh, apparently is uh, is God approved and uh, and God commanded even in the Bible. So I've got a quote here from Christopher Wright. Uh, what can you do about all the violence in the Old Testament? That is the question, and we are right to struggle with it. So we're doing a good thing this morning by not shying away from the subject and, uh, and by tackling it. Now, of course, people like um, you know Richard Dawkins, you know the new atheists, so-called, they they're very cynical about religious belief in general and especially about Christianity, and they're very uh, aggressive and they like to point out uh, how hateful the God of the Bible appears to be at times. You know, they like to paint God in a very poor light, you know, vengeful, bloodthirsty, intolerant, racist, abusive. Um, and of course, those of us who, who love God, who, who, who know Jesus, who have a different picture of God altogether, that's quite painful. That's quite a sort of, you know, awkward thing. So how do we, how do we handle it? How do we understand things like the, the conquest under Joshua of, of Canaan? you know, by pretty violent means, you know, and it was apparently commanded by God. So we can reach for solutions to this, um, some of which are easy to grab for, but actually ultimately are a bit unfruitful. So I'm first of all, going to go through two or three dead end solutions to this, or supposed solutions. So first of all, we could say, well, that was all the Old Testament, and the New Testament corrects it, um, you know, the New Testament is full of love and compassion, whereas the Old is all about violence and it's outdated and the New basically sorts it all out. The trouble is we end up noticing that there is some things, a fair bit actually, about wrath and judgment in the New Testament as well. And there's quite a lot about God's love and compassion in the Old, so it's not straightforward Old versus New. And of course, even more awkwardly, Jesus and the, the early disciples actually accepted these conquest stories as authentic, um, although they did move beyond them in various ways. So just saying, well, the Old Testament was corrected by the New isn't, isn't really good enough. We could perhaps say that the Israelites misheard God. You know, a lot of people say, well, they only thought God told them to conquer the land. The problem is, if that's, that was a misunderstanding, then that's repeated and supported in lots of other places in the Bible. You know, the Psalms and even in the New Testament, you know, there's a couple of quotes in Acts there where the, the people, you know, maybe Paul or others in the, the New Testament, they see the conquest as an act of God. You know, so they don't, you know, this kind of, they misheard God isn't really good enough on its own either. So we could then say, well, okay, these stories were all an allegory, you know, it's a parable, they're not to be taken literally, it's just a, a picture of spiritual warfare. Um, and often we do use these stories that way, you know, you've, how many sermons have you heard where the preacher uses the story of the invasion of the land under Joshua as uh, a picture of, of God's um, 
warfare in the common, you know, in, in the present day, higher Ruth. Um, and, you know, a symbol of spiritual warfare in the, in the present. However, the Bible does portray these stories as literal, gen genuine, historical uh, aspects of what God did with his people and, and all to do with the, the plan of salvation for the world. So we can't just treat them as mythology either. Um, and in fact, it's a different genre anyway to the, say, the creation stories, which could potentially be treated allegorically. So it's not really the same kind of writing. So those are kind of dead ends, if you like. Um, they're areas of thought that we could, you know, that may be helpful, may not be, but they don't really answer anything. So how can we start to frame our thinking in ways that can help? So I've got, uh, I've had three dead ends. I'm going to have three things that could help us. Uh, firstly, as I'm always saying, with good hermeneutics, we always want to see what we're looking at in the light of the whole Bible. So these troubling stories we've got to see in the light of the rest. So scripture generally reveals God as compassionate, good, kind and loving, and right across the Old and the New Testament. And it's worth saying that the Bible is very ambivalent about war. You know, it doesn't, you know, it, it sort of wrestles with war. It doesn't really like it, but it, it often condemns what nations do in terms of warfare. It, they, they often had strict conditions that they weren't allowed to go beyond. You know, they had to spare certain people or they, were only allowed, they weren't allowed to get the plunder quite often. You know, it wasn't for their own benefit. Um, they... Um, Obviously, the Bible also promises a final end to war. You know, the, the, the bashing of swords into plowshares. Uh, you know, that it's going to come to an end. And one really interesting thing is that David, even though he was a man after God's own heart, he wasn't allowed by God to build the temple because God said, no, you've got blood on your hands. You've, you're a man of war. You've, you've been a warfaring person. And the person who was allowed to build the temple was Solomon, whose name means peace. Um, so, you know, we need to start to have a rounded picture. Secondly, we have to understand that the world at the time of Joshua was extremely different to the world today. So we can't judge him and what he did in the light of our 21st century viewpoint. So recently, um, you know, Churchill, Winston Churchill is often voted as the, the sort of greatest ever Briton you know, the greatest British person. And, and I think I, I kind of like that. I know, to be honest, that the greatest British person is probably some unknown person that's serving God in, in prayer or in serving the poor or whatever. But in terms of a national leader, he's often portrayed that way. And yet more recently, somebody tried to quote from Churchill. You know, in all innocence, they quoted something, an inspiring thing that Churchill had written. And they got this social media backlash of, don't you know that Churchill was a racist? Because Churchill had a, um, a, an attitude which was common in his day that he believed that certain races were superior. You know, and he was born in the 19th century. You know, if, if we were born 200 years ago or eight, you know, 100 years ago, or whatever, we would have had different views to what we have now. So it's unfair to sort of condemn Churchill and say, you can't treat him as good, you can't use any of his good quotes because he had this one view that was wrong. And so it's, it's a bit like that when we look at people like Joshua in history. We can't judge their actions 
um, in accordance with what we now know or what we now believe. So, so in those days you had these tiny little city-states, you know, so you had a king in a city which probably wasn't much more than a, a town or a large village, and you also had these tribes that were kind of marauding around looking for space, looking for, and there wasn't, there was a load of space because there weren't very many people, but they were looking for land, they were looking for resources, they all believed in local gods, and they went around basically being pretty merciless to one another, you know, and this idea of ethnic cleansing uh, with the threat of total destruction. That was practiced not just by the Israelites but by by other tribes and some of the movements of these tribes are recorded in the Bible. Um, they used to live here but they moved there and then this tribe kicked out that tribe. You know there's verses in the Bible that talk about that and that was Joshua's world. Um, and in their culture, in their world, they simply couldn't conceive of the God of non-violence and pure love that Jesus revealed. They weren't ready for it. They had a primitive understanding of God, but God graciously still got involved with them and patiently over centuries he started to reveal more and more of himself. So there were certain things uh, that they had which were basically allowed by God because of hardness of heart. You know, he's, it talks about, uh, in Mark 10, it talks about how Moses wrote them a law about allowing divorce because their hearts were hard. It wasn't because that was God's heart, it wasn't what God wanted, but he allowed them to have the divorce law, actually to protect women from indiscriminate divorce. It was actually kind of to protect people uh, because of that. But, so there would be certain things that happened that, that didn't reflect God's heart. So that's, that's the second thing. It was very, very different. They were in a different place. Thirdly, we need to see the conquest in the light of God's ultimate purpose. So I'm not about to say, oh, the end justifies the means. That's not really where I'm going, but it helps us to understand it if we realize that God needed to create a space for a nation into whom he could reveal himself. Um, and he's growing this, this culture and this awareness of God um, so that he could eventually be born into that culture as a human being and, and be the ultimate image of the true nature of God. And so without this kind of drastic action into this kind of maelstrom of violence that was there, that culture may never have existed or, or been, you know, it may have been snuffed out at the very beginning so that, you know, that God's plan of salvation and peace for the world wouldn't have been able to be established. Uh, just a couple of other things, just thoughts really, that none of this answers the question by the way, uh, but these are sort of thoughts that might help us. Uh, the Canaanites, they could switch sides. Rahab, the prostitute actually switched sides you know she realized what God was doing she recognized that God was with them and so she was spared interesting case the Jebusites they were supposed to wipe out the Jebusites they lived in Jerusalem and it was clear that even long after Joshua they were still clinging on they were still there and David actually took the city but then in Zechariah chapter 9, it talks about foreigners being welcomed into Israel, and it says they will be like the Jebusites. So the Jebusites must have become part of Israel. They were supposed to be wiped out, but they must have kind of switched sides and actually become part of Israel in a, in a more positive way than, than just being enslaved or whatever. 
And then of course the laws, in, even in the law of Moses, there was provision for the foreigners that lived amongst them. You know, God said basically love the foreigners that have settled and that have, have adopted, you know, your God and your culture. You know, they were, they were to be included. And it just shows even then God's heart for the foreigner. So it's not just about racism, <laughs> you know. So, so these are things that, that can help to start to frame something. They don't answer the question. They don't fully get God off the hook, if you like, because it, you know, you read it and taken at face value, God commanded some terrible things to happen. You know, God, on the face of it, did some terrible things, like the killing of all the firstborn in Egypt. So we're going to have a, a short break for a, a scone and a little bit of, of discussion, having just sort of um, stirred things up a little. Um, so how can we reconcile these texts with the God revealed in Christ without rejecting the Bible as God's written word. So, you know, just a small question for us to consider over a, a, a bite. So we'll come back in a few minutes and we'll, we'll continue and try and make some sense of it. That's all good discussion. Um, what we're going to do in part two is really try and lay a, a different kind of foundation so that we can, it may not answer 100% of everybody's questions, but the, it will provide a platform for us to be able to really grapple with the stuff and, and keep ourselves on the, <laughs> on the right path, if you like, in terms of understanding. So uh, I'm going to pre pretty quickly get into some pretty deep theology and then bring out the, uh, the practicalities afterwards. So we were mentioning briefly in the break how some people seem to have a really kind of cut and dried view of God's judgment. So if you remember when we did the TLS on free will and I spoke about Calvinism, you know, if you're a Calvinist, you believe that God controls and wills every single action that every, anybody does ever, including all the evil ones. So basically God is completely in control and if somebody kills a baby, that's God's will, you know. Um, so if God commands genocide, then the fact that God commanded it makes it right and makes that good. Um, I don't really think that's a very nice picture of God, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but they believe, you know, God punishes sin. They believe we all deserve punishment, so God can do whatever he likes and we deserve it. Well, we might, but it's not really God's heart, is it? So I don't believe. But the, the, the prevailing belief and attitude of people influenced by Calvinism is that basically God is very merciful until a deadline. Once the deadline is reached, God's mercy flips over into judgment. Time has run out, you know, whether it's an individual or a nation they're talking about. And God suddenly turns from this wonderful, gracious father into the mighty smiter and you're in trouble um, but is that really true you know is that an attractive picture to give to anyone in terms of the gospel I mean okay we're not salesmen we're not trying to sweeten the gospel we, we want the truth you know we're not just trying to make it attractive for for recruitment's sake but is that really the way God is and a lot of theologians praise God are saying no that is not the way God is now, the first thing uh, and I was saying this last week in the Sunday meeting, we, we need to look at all of the scripture in the light of Christ. So any text that seems to present God differently 
to what Christ shows us, we have to look at it through the lens <coughs> of Christ as the greater revelation. You know, God shows us the different nature of God, a God who doesn't coerce and force. You know, Jesus constantly was trying to stop people making him king by force. He didn't want to overthrow the Romans by force. You know, that's not who he was. But God transforms through the power of selfless love. So, as I say, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go into like a deep dive into some really amazing, what I think is really amazing theology, and I'm not, not taking credit for it, but I just think this is, um, is quite amazing. So bear with me as we go right back to sort of before time, if you like, and then we'll, we'll come back out and then we'll see how that applies in this area of violence. So think back to a time before the universe, there's nothing in existence at all, there's just God. There's no planets, no, there's no space even, just God. Now God wants to create the universe, but because he wants to have genuine relationship with the creatures he's going to form, what he has to do, because he is God and his will prevails, what he does, he kind of creates a space for other wills to exist. So that space, where is that space? Well, it has to be within God. There's nowhere else, you know, there isn't anywhere outside of God. So it's almost like God opens up a space within himself for creation to exist. And in that sense, he empties himself. He gives up his right to, do, to control everything, to exert his exclusive will, so that he can provide the capacity for created beings to actually make proper choices. Now, of course, that opens up the door for evil, wrong choices by humans and by angelic creatures. But he's basically laying down his rights and handing them, giving power to others. Now that concept is God's self-emptying and it's called kenosis, the self-emptying of God. Um, now of course it's dramatically demonstrated in the cross, you know, in, in the, the incarnation and going to the cross. And we, we talk about, you know, you laid aside your majesty, you know, the song. And, and we think of God's emptying himself as him humbling himself to come as a man and to die on the cross and that is a supreme revelation of God's self-emptying but what if that wasn't just a means to an end what if that kenosis that self-emptying wasn't just about the incarnation and the cross just to bring about salvation what if that is actually the image of God himself what if kenosis self-emptying is who God is. It's not just Jesus humbled himself to save us, but Jesus showed us who God is, mm. the self-emptying, others-focused mm. God who relinquishes power because he wants relationship. It's a demonstration of what God is like from eternity past. You know, when we talked about the Trinity a few good few months ago now, probably a year ago, or maybe not quite, we, we saw how the Trinity was constantly, each person in the Trinity is constantly giving themselves to the other and deferring to the other. Yeah. And so God defers within himself, um, but he also defers to creation. You know, he prefers to love, to persuade, to win hearts and win minds rather than to threaten 
and compel. So it's a, it's a different image of God to the Calvinist God. You know, um, really different. So the universe is created. So God wants other things other than himself to, to take sway. So he creates natural laws like gravity. Um, you know, mass and energy and E equals MC squared and so on. And they're all set up by God and they're allowed to operate for good or ill. So if I open that window now and jump out, which I would not do, um, God is not going to turn gravity off. <laughs> you know, it's going to do its work, you know, whether, whether it's good or not. And what does that mean? It means I need to rule. I need to rule my impulses. I need to be aware of what's going on and take responsibility <coughs> not just act like a child and expect God to to do everything. So there are natural laws that they're also by the way supernatural laws that can supersede the physical world you know so it's not just that God is this clockmaker who sets up the universe and then goes off we can influence the what happens naturally so I'm not discounting miracles but it's God's self-limiting um, is, is he, he sets these things up and they run generally but also he gives his creatures whether uh, angelic or whether human uh, ability to make choices yeah. now th this is an important one so God's self-limiting means that although he is what theologians call the primary cause of all things he is the first cause because he created them and he allowed you know, allowed everything to exist, there are secondary causes that can make things happen, like physical laws and human free will and, and angelic free will. So God is ultimately responsible for everything that happens. He's the primary cause of everything. But he isn't directly to blame for the evil that happens when these secondary causes operate. You know, so we say, for example, God doesn't cause sickness. You know, and we strongly believe that. God doesn't decree that somebody is ill. Now, obviously, God created the universe. God created the conditions where sickness could exist. But we know it's the enemy that creates sickness. It's human bad choices often that create sickness. Um, now, <clears throat> immature faith, simplistic faith, says that, well, God punishes people whenever they sin. And if you do something wrong, you something wrong will happen to you because God's punishing you. Now, some, even some high-profile evangelical preachers have said, you know, when a natural disaster happens, you know, that it's not long before somebody's banging on about it and saying, this is God's judgment on that people. You know, 9-11 was God's judgment on America because of probably gay marriage or something like that. Or... You know, the tsunami, you know, it, it's God's judgment on those Muslim nations. Wow. Mm. You know, that's where Job yeah. found, you know, Job was wrestling with that back in the Bible. And the message of the book of Job is when people sin, you know, it's not that God is punishing them for some kind of sin. You know, it's not that... Um, when people suffer. When, sorry, when people <laughs> suffer. Beg your pardon. Yeah, thank you for that. So it's like... Job is wrestling with why am I suffering and his comforters, so-called comforters, come along and say, oh well you must have done something wrong, that's why you're suffering. 
And the whole point of the book of Job is now there's more stuff going on that they're not aware of. You know, there's Satan involved, you know, the secondary cause of Satan, you know. And, um, and the point is that God's there to restore, you know, and so the message of Job is God is, God is with you in the suffering and he will restore you. And there's a mediator coming that will sort it all out. But we've not learned the lesson of Job, you know, some people anyway. And so they blame suffering as, as God's punishment for sin. Um, but it's not like that you know so we we recognize now that the suffer suffering is the result of secondary causes which could be bad choices not just by us but by other people because one person's bad choice can affect lots of other people as well or it could be natural effects um, you know natural forces operating unchecked because of human negligence demonic influence uh, you know we're meant to rule both naturally with wisdom and good stewardship of the world but also supernaturally in prayer and, and, and expressing God's heart of love in authority so these are, these are secondary causes now in Luke 13 verses 1 to 5 Jesus actually covers this issue because he says you know that they're, they're talking to him about these people that Pilate has slaughtered and mixed their blood with the sacrifices and you know there's a massacre and and they're saying well those people must have been especially sinful and Jesus said no they're not more sinful than anyone else and he said you know you remember the tower that fell down this tower of Siloam which we we don't know anything about outside the Bible but apparently a tower collapsed and some people died and Jesus is saying look they weren't more sinful than anyone else you know it's just these secondary causes happening it wasn't yeah. God's punishment for them they were specifically not evidence of of, of sin um, so <clears throat> God continues to allow these forces to operate but it's not weakness and it's not a lack of love but it's to do with the kind of universe that God wants to create. He doesn't want to create a universe where he micromanages everything um, because that turns us into robots. He wants us, human beings, as co-rulers to take responsibility, to express his love, his self-sacrificing love. And you can't control that kind of universe through force uh, or you can't create that kind of universe by controlling it. You can only use the transforming power of love. Um, just as an aside, you know, when we, we did mention this sort of general suffering in the break, you know, when, when you think about all the suffering that is in the world, and there's a lot of it, there's a lot of good stuff as well, but there is a lot of suffering that we become aware of through, uh, through the media. Um, the vast, vast, vast majority of suffering is caused by human beings, yeah. either directly or indirectly through negligence. Even things like natural disasters. Mm -hmm. If you think about the recent earthquake in uh, was it Indonesia, you get an earthquake like that in California, and you won't get very many people injured or you know or killed because the buildings are built properly, mm -hmm. the, the the services are there, the you know the the warning systems are there you know that um, if we as as a planet as a as a human race if we shared resources mm. if we if there was justice 
so that people had enough so that they didn't have to live in dangerous areas if we shared all the knowledge of how to build properly if we had proper services in place proper warning systems and all the full creativity of the human race was unleashed onto this problem how many people would die in earthquakes mm. you know i can't put my hand on my heart and say none but vastly fewer um, the world still has somewhere to go before it's it's the perfect world that god is is creating but it's sad that buildings kill not the earthquake mm, the way the buildings are, are put up the recent tsunami they had a warning system built after the last one and it was a it would have given them enough warning but i think all but two of the boys they were placed in about 30 odd boys i think i can't remember exactly the number but lots of boys off the coastline almost all of them had fallen into disrepair because they hadn't been maintained and that's due to you know lack of resources lack of will i don't know why um but how many people would have been saved if that had been the case so that's just you know an example of where God is calling humanity to to do better <laughs> to work together to express his rule on his behalf okay so and that means that the kingdom comes through this others preferring love so God's kenosis this self-emptying of God is the image of God so we're meant to display the image of God by by emptying ourselves on behalf of others by having that mindset you know the the kingdom comes through us laying down our power for other people our rights okay so that was what did i call that one the universe power and causality okay it's a rather grand title next little section um, an unfolding revelation to maturing people so now we're starting to head towards we've laid a foundation of who god is and why he is like that and the fact that there are secondary and primary causes now we're going to look at uh, the bible again and we did cover some of this in our second tls on the bible so first of all not all of the bible carries equal weight wow shock horror to some people you know but some of the bible is better at describing god than other bits you know some parts reveal god more fully even the writer to the Hebrews says that you know, prior to Christ coming, um, God was revealed in various ways through the prophets and so on, including books of the Bible, but that was all inferior to the supreme revelation that came through Christ. So the scriptures themselves are gradually unfolding an explanation of who God is. And uh, you can see the development in thinking, even in the pages of the Bible itself. So uh, I've mentioned this before in TLS, but there are two versions or two accounts of the story of David counting his fighting men. And in doing so, he was doing the wrong thing because he was trusting in his own strength. You know, it's in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. So there's an earlier version, which is 2 Samuel and in that record of the event it's god who incites david to count the fighting men but in the second one in two chronicles which is written sometime later satan is to blame so uh, there'd been an increase in understanding there'd been a development in the theology of the people that's reflected in the bible writing so that 
you know, whilst whilst God may well be the primary cause of everything, and that was that was the big thing that they knew in the early days of Israel. They just knew that their God was the only God. You know, there may have been other little demonic gods, but they were nothing compared to Yahweh. You know, He was the the one sovereign God. So everything was done by Him. You know, that their knowledge was. God's in charge, God is the only God, there are no other gods, therefore everything's done by him. If we say anything's not done by him, we're diluting that truth. And so they got hold of this idea that God is the primary cause of everything. So they report the fact that, well, God did this. But, but gradually they became aware, their, their thinking became a bit more subtle, and they realised that there is an enemy that can act independently of God in some sense. Uh, and we know that Satan is limited, but we also know that, that he can act independently. And so the second account takes that into account. Now the same thing happens when Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, is talking about how some of the Old Testament Israelites died. And he's, he's recounting stories from the early parts of the Bible. And he's careful not to point the blame at God. So there were people who were killed by snakes or they were killed by the destroying angel. These are secondary causes, they're not primary causes. So Paul is, why is Paul doing that? Because he's received a revelation in Christ of who God is, that God isn't a destroyer. He realizes it's the thief that comes to steal and kill and destroy. So the older parts of the Bible are much more likely to skip over this idea of secondary causes because the thinking hadn't developed yet, and they point to God as the ultimate source of everything, but that is a, a drastic oversimplification. And God allows them to think that way at that early point in history, but as the Bible unfolds, it unpacks a greater revelation as the people become more mature and can handle it. So it's not that the early parts of the Bible are wrong, but actually taken on their own, they would be misleading. And therefore you have to take the whole Bible and think, well, actually, let's just see through that because it's a, diff it's a more complex situation than that. And we should do that when we read the, the Old Testament. You know, we think, actually, we know, we know better than them now because we've got the rest of the Bible. So they've got a simplified view. And so we're not going to take that literally and we're not going to give that equal weight with the scriptures that present God as we know he is. Okay unfolding revelation. So now we're going to look at wrath. Hurrah! <laughs> Some Christians love talking about the wrath of God. Now, Romans chapter 1. Let's, let's go for, for the jugular, shall we? <laughs> Romans chapter 1. Paul recounts all sorts of sins and how people, the human race, has incurred the wrath of God. But what is wrath? Is it fire from heaven. I've got a nice picture of some supernatural flame there. <laughs> um, is it demonic torment? But if you read Romans 1, again and again, Paul says, the people did this, therefore God gave them over. And this phrase, gave them over, occurs at least three times, I think. Uh, so what's afflicting them, it isn't God's direct punishment <coughs> for, for their sin, but it's the, the inevitable outcome of what they were doing. So the natural, and the natural outcome of their way of life and their choices. So in other words, God basically said, okay, if you want to go that way, I'm going to consent 
to your will. Mm. And it's, it's God's kenosis again. It's God's preferring others and saying, okay, I'm going to respect your choice. I'm not going to overrule you. I'm not going to strap you down or blast you or forcibly change your mind. I'm going to respect you as a, as a, a creation that I've made in my image. You can make your own choices, but these will be the consequences. And it's not an arbitrary punishment that, that God zaps down from heaven, but it's the self-harm that is inherent in sin. There's actually no need for God to punish sin, because sin has its own wages. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. You see it in the, uh, in the story of the prodigal son. You know, does the father start railing and venting his wrath against the son? Does he start black-mouthing him in, in the, the village council? Or No, he, 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 he grieves and he, he looks every day to see whether his son's coming back. You know, and, but he allowed the son to suffer the consequences of his crazy actions. The father knew what would happen and the son went away suffered the consequences of his lack of wisdom and his, his betrayal really and, and eventually came to his senses but the father is rejoicing and restoring the son not so not wagging his finger or or locking him up in jail you know so you've got this um, this principle it's built into the fabric of the universe there's a principle of sowing and reaping and it's not necessarily just tit for tat you know it's not just you know um, God will blast you or you know you you sin one minute the next minute something will happen but there is a sowing and reaping principle that when we sin we set a chain of events in motion that results in hurt and it could be hurt for ourselves could be hurt for other people often both and we basically unleash the secondary causes whether that's other people whether that's things we've done ourselves or whether it's natural processes because we did something stupid, um, injured ourselves or others because of lack of wisdom, or whether it's demonic forces. And these forces wreak havoc if we let them in our life, in other people's lives. And as I say, God doesn't prevent it because he respects our choice because of love. Um, you know, people say, well, why did God allow that child abuser to abuse those children? Why didn't God stop them? You know, well, well how many people would God have to stop to stop them hurting other people? Well, everybody, really. <laughs> so suddenly everybody's in a straitjacket mm. and everybody's a robot. <coughs> yeah, um, yeah. Well, why didn't God just stop the wicked people? Well, where do you draw the line? You know, who's wicked and who's not wicked? You know, it's... Um, he respects our choices, but he wants to transform the world and bring an end to the suffering. So, back to the Calvinist again. The, the, the Calvinist believes there's a tipping point where God's mercy switches off and God's wrath switches in. But what if it's not the case that God suddenly flips into wrath mode? Um, what if it's us? That flips the switch what if it's our actions corporately or or individually what if it's us that stops the flow of God's mercy into our lives and what if wrath is actually just the, the stopping of God's mercy into our lives because we've chosen to be we've chosen to do it and it introduces consequences that God's mercy is trying to avert but we open ourselves up to that 
Um, you know, it's it's a it's an unnerving thing to think of God as somebody that could flip into wrath. You know, um, it would be a bit like an abusive father. You know, where the child loves the father and wants to be with them and snuggles up to them, but they're never quite sure if the dad is suddenly going to get violent. God is not like that. You know, um, we're not going to push God too far. We're not going to push God to the point where suddenly he's going to get really angry with us. You know, God is merciful, but God will respect our choices. We still have to respect that and realise that that if we if we push too far, God will let us have our head. But his mercy is always extended towards us. His love is always extended and waiting for us to turn back. So, uh, just clarifying that then, summarising, wrath is a metaphor, it's a biblical metaphor for what happens when people shut down God's best for them and open themselves up to the consequences, the the self-destruct button basically. Um, But the early Bible writers didn't understand that, so they often talk about God's wrath as being an active divine choice that God you know, God is almost reflected in the way they understand gods at their time, that they get wrathful and angry. Now, God is never portrayed as petty, but their writing is coloured in that way because they can't understand the subtlety of it. So we now realise that wrath is actually just the painful result of God letting us have our way. So just going back to the Luke 13 passage where you know they're talking about the sacrifice, the blood and the, the tower that collapsed and so on. In my study Bible, I've got the NIV study Bible, which is generally very good. But the commentary on that verse says, ah yes, um, Jesus was saying that these people were no more sinful than anyone else. And you think, well, okay, that is right. Yeah, he was saying that, you know, it's not God's punishment on sin. But then it says, but Jesus is saying that all sinners will be judged with a much worse judgment if if they don't repent. Because Jesus talks about if, if you don't repent, you too will all perish. Mm. Now again, I've, I've mentioned this before in TLS. This is not Jesus threatening them with a deadline, saying that if you don't believe by the end of this deadline, you will be burned forever in hell. <laughs> what he's saying to this group of people is, if you don't change your mind about who I am, if you don't recognise that I'm not the kind of Messiah that you want, you want a violent, controlling military messiah who's going to boot out the Romans, if you don't change your path in your kind of violent, restless sedition or um, rebellion thoughts against the Romans, then the Romans are going to come and obliterate you. And that's exactly what happened in AD 70. So it's it's the consequences of their own actions that they're being warned about, not God will judge you unless you agree with him. Um, so, okay, wrath as consent then that was. So we'll, the next thing we can do, if we understand that wrath is God's consent, then we can recognise that as a metaphor and we can start to unmetaphor the difficult passages. So, again, going back to the story about David numbering the troops. It's quite a difficult passage after that because God gives him three choices, plague, famine, or being uh, invaded by your enemies. 
and he chooses plague um, you think gosh that's really harsh but then we can start to see through that we can see actually it's not God doing the smiting it's a destroying angel whatever that was and God's actually grieved over it it says in, in one of the passages you know perhaps David's lack of focus on 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 God and the fact that David was trying to measure his own strength and his attention was elsewhere maybe he had allowed demonic infiltration um, maybe the angel was a symbol of that we can also recall that you know the they had these options of famine or enemy invasion maybe he was distracted by all this massive exercise in numbering the troops maybe whilst his mind was, his eye was off the ball as it were his enemies were plotting to invade to ruin the land to uh, you know to commit warfare and destroy people now if, if you can imagine that a serious plague yeah, short but serious would make them think twice <laughs> you know so that's probably why there was an option there because um, one of these things is going to happen if the plague happens the enemy's going to go Poor, I'm not going there you know for at least a few years until that's definitely gone you know so that gives David a chance to reset things and actually properly protect the land so I'm not saying that God willed the plague but God did allow it but he turned it to good in some way um, just one of the just whilst it occurs to me the people that died in the plague and also the, the Canaanites who died in the invasion nobody ever said that they just went whisked off to hell you know they're not damned necessarily you know they, they're God is just God is merciful so it's not a case of all of these people because they didn't believe in Jesus you know they all went off to hell you know and that's just something that's worth bearing in mind you know some hardliners would dispute that but it doesn't say that anywhere so starting to come to the crux of the matter now so in, in the conquest stories the Bible uh, portrays God as commanding certain things which to us are unacceptable you know the, it was limited and there were only a few places but there's more than you know more than we would like where God does actually command them to do certain things now what if that command was actually God's reluctant consent and an acknowledgement of where they are uh, an acceptance of the mindset that they had at the time which he knows he's going to use to bring about salvation for the world if we if we think that way then when we read it we can almost sense the heart of God saying oh okay you know this is the way you are this is your mindset I'm gonna work through this I'm gonna bring salvation I don't like it but I'm gonna get my hands dirty in your world and I'm gonna maintain my my love towards you by giving you consent to do what you want to do so in that sense God says yes go and do it so they record it as God commanded us to go and kill these people and whatever when actually it was more a reluctant consent to let them have their way because they're just not capable of being any other way at that time but God knows he's going to work through it 
that may not answer all of the questions, but it certainly sheds a better light on it than that their sin, you know, the sin of the people was so bad that God had to wipe them out, you know. Um, surely there must be another way, we might think. Well, there is another way, and God is doing it in the world today. So there will be questions and problems that, that remain, and we, it's one of these things where you've just got to keep wrestling with it. But at the same time, you've just got to hold on to the truth that God's way is non-violent. You know, God's way is love. You know, Jesus said, turn the other cheek, you know. Don't resist an evil person. In other words, don't just go beating people up. Now, I don't know if Jesus would be a, a pacifist in the Second World War. I don't know, Rob. But um, these are things that we'd have to wrestle with. War probably is essential at times. But we've got to be so careful what we do, not justifying it uh, in the wrong way. So, God's... Uh, God's way is to refrain from control in order to win hearts so he doesn't actively instigate suffering but neither is he passively ignoring it and that's important as well he just doesn't he doesn't just wring his hands from the sidelines but he is involved you know he's with us in it working to bring good out of it even though it's not good in itself and then the, the really important thing to bear in mind is that at the cross God came in person and entered into our suffering and he took upon himself all of the consequences of our sin all of the the wrong choices all of the evil all of the bad things that anybody anywhere at any time had ever done you know in stretching out his arms he accepts it he absorbs it into himself he goes through the horror of it he absorbs it inside and then overcomes so did he suffer wrath yes he did but it wasn't the the punishment of the father on the son but rather it's God in the son shouldering the burden of the results of all of our sin all the weight of all the suffering at all time and then emerging victoriously on the other side so he came under the curse and the curse wasn't God's arbitrary curse it was just this is the result of sin this is what happens and he took it in order to free us from the effects of sin and break the cycle you know to break through that cycle the vicious circle of sowing and reaping to make it possible for us to enter that freedom so God does not punish sin with yet more pain. You know, he overcomes evil through selfless love. So when, when we see somebody that's suffering, we, we don't just think, well, they must have brought it on themselves. You know, we see Jesus suffering with them. You know, and he's so entered into the human condition, so um, identified with our suffering that he knows what it's like he not only goes through it with us but he's also been through it and he's overcome it so we're gonna gonna just draw to a close shortly so just a, a couple of final thoughts it's worth noting how Jesus read the Old Testament uh, when he went to Nazareth that's in Luke chapter 4 he reads from Isaiah 61 
and he says the spirit of the lord is on me and proclaim good news and all that and he's reading this paragraph and now his audience bear in mind are under roman occupation they love this passage because it's it finishes off and the day of vengeance of our god and they're looking forward to it you know they're sitting there anticipating this line it's like wow they're gonna kind of they're gonna yeah he's gonna proclaim god beating up the romans you know and to their immense disappointment he doesn't say that line he stops he just said oh and uh, the year of the lord's favor and he rolls up the scroll hands it back to the attendant and sits down and they're all looking at him and they're thinking why didn't you say that last bit now you 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 good calvinist bless them will say ah that's because god's vengeance is for the last day it's for the you know god's vengeance is for the day of judgment but could it be that jesus was selective in what he read because he knew that their interpretation of vengeance was wrong you know god's vengeance god's justice god's judgment in terms of the old testament people was about god rescuing his people freeing them it was about it was a prophetic metaphor for god god's salvation from the enemies of sin satan and death so jesus was selective about how he read the old testament so was paul um, you know, when, when Paul says, death, where is your victory? Uh, you know, the grave, you know, where is your sting? He's actually quoting from a passage in the Bible that's actually being a bit condemnatory. You know, I think it's, is it Haggai? I might be wrong. You can look it up later. But he says, Haggai says, where's your victory? Where's your death? Where's your sting? You know, where's your, and he's actually calling on death. It's like, go on, sting him. But Paul turns it around and says, ha, <laughs> the sting the sting's gone you know the, the victory's gone so paul turns around the scriptures and is selective in how he uses them and so should we be not that the scriptures are wrong but they need to be de-metaphored uh, so that we understand them correctly and and mercy triumphs over judgment james 2 verse 13 so mercy doesn't have a time limit and it doesn't have a threat attached to it and we do well to remember that when we present the gospel to people you know god's mercy is stronger than the grave you know i, I touched on it when we touched on hell um i won't go there now neither to hell nor into that subject <laughs> um so i'm finishing with just a, a quote here from a guy called bradley jerzak and if you if you're interested in what i've been saying and you, you want to understand it more there's a book of his called a more christ-like god a more beautiful gospel uh, which is fantastic and, and in it he says this a couple of selected quotes god may appear complicit in our violence because god allows it in love god bears the guilt of maintaining covenant relationships with violent people isn't that gracious of god our blood is on god's hands just as god's blood was on our hands in love god consents to our undergoing and enduring to no god consents to undergoing and enduring our wrath on the cross and he's basically saying it was our wrath that that was was onto jesus on the cross he consents to allowing our wrath against rome against others you know he consents to allowing rome's wrath against us his consent is wrath his consent is love and that's something worth thinking about you know it's it's not easy it, it takes some thinking about this cruciform god you know the kenosis another way of describing god's kenosis his self-emptying 
is that he is a cruciform God, cross-shaped. Mm. That the cross demonstrates who God is, mm. not just as a rescue plan, but as God's nature. Mm. Power laid down, mm. that's the image of God. Mm. And what if the image of God that we bear is to lay down our power? Um, I haven't got time now, but I could talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Rob, that you were mentioning a few weeks ago. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil was our opportunity not to grasp at God. You know, Satan wanted us to grasp, to become like God. What if the refusal to grasp, refraining from grasping at knowledge, was actually us being like God? Laying down our choice, laying down our power, so it was the simplest way that God could, could allow us to be like him was not to eat, which is kind of the opposite of what Satan said. So anyway, I, I have gone into that now, but I really must stop. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so have a think, um, and maybe we'll see some of these passages now in a different way. Mm-hmm.